This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, we have Aino. She's a teacher, a technical conference editor, and a retrospectives facilitator. We'll talk about three anti-patterns from the book she wrote, Retrospectives Anti-Patterns. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the show. Today we have Aino as our guest. Aino, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I would. First, I'll say thank you for inviting me, Enrico. It's a pleasure. I think... I hope it will be anyway. Maybe I'd withdraw that later, but so far, so good. <laughs> so my name is Anna Kori. I uh, live in Denmark. I am Danish. I, um, I've been facilitating retrospectives since about um, 2007. So that's a few years now, about 13 years. Previous, before that, I, I did a PhD in computer science and I thought I wanted to be a researcher in computer science with focus on software architecture and patterns. but I, when I found the retrospectives, there was no way back for me. I just love facilitating retrospectives and all kinds of meetings. And I love making people feel good about these retrospectives and helping them get an outcome that they're happy about. Nice. Um, you want to tell us about uh, the work uh, you're currently doing and what makes you passionate about it? So it's... I'm very passionate about the work I'm doing at the moment. I'm an agile coach at a company in Denmark where I get to facilitate the retrospectives, but I also do some um, some coaching for, for the team and the side of that for, for, an agile, for an agile journey for them. And then I have some teams where I just come in as a retrospective facilitator and facilitate all the retrospectives because they've chosen to have an external facilitator for different reasons. And then I have some teams where... I only facilitate every three months or every second month because they facilitate most of the retrospectives themselves. And I I can be very tired when I start a retrospective because I've got other things on my mind, but I always get a lot of energy from these retrospectives. Even even if people sometimes are negative about it, I get a lot of energy out of it. Yeah, awesome. Um, it's funny, I have a tech background as well. And um, yeah, the transition to... To, to facilitating to me it felt like going from a, from a bug solving bugs is somewhat like complicated and it can take hours to do but solving solving air quotes people uh, problem is a much more energizing activity much more fun at least for me and you yeah <laughs> um <laughs> I guess, um, how did you get interested in facilitation and uh, retrospective facilitation? Well, it was um, it was by chance, like most other things in my life. I happened to be at a conference where Linda Rising was giving a talk about project retrospectives. She based that on Norm Kurth's book, and I didn't know what retrospectives was. I just wanted to hear her talk. I really like Linda Rising's talk. So she talked about retrospectives for projects and I thought it was so interesting. And she gave me the book, the Norm Kurth book on project retrospectives. And I read it and I just got so inspired. And I I started 
trying some things out. And then I got Diana Larson and Esther Darby's book about agile retrospectives. And I really loved that as well because it was, uh, it was so operational. They, you can just read the book and you can get a whole agenda for different kinds of retrospectives, what material you need to bring, what you should say and not say. It's, that's been extremely helpful for me. And then I was lucky nice. enough to take a course with Diana Larson and then I became a cone trainer with Diana Larson on some courses. So it just sort of trickled that way. And awesome. I facilitated things in the company I worked for and then I started facilitating retrospectives for their customers. And, well, it just took off now. I'm facilitating retrospectives for my family and whoever wants to have a retrospective. That's great. And Norma's book... Um... I read it a while back now, and one thing that I still vividly remember, there's an analogy, a little story of, a, of an owl, which I think is a, is a great, um, if people haven't read it, uh, there's a lot of great insights. Mm. And, but that story, I think, uh, is, a, is, a, is a great, I guess, analogy on why we need uh, retrospectives. Cool. Um, what is... Um, so... I hear that you are writing a book and I hear you're writing a book means that I know that you're writing a book. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, there was some talking about it at the retrospective facilitators gathering last year. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing and why do we need another book about retrospectives? Yeah, well, we don't really need another book about retrospective, but I really need to write this book about retrospectives. So what happened was that that was at a conference. I think I think we do need another <laughs> okay. book of a retro. By the way, I'm gonna like play uh, like the invasive host. Uh, I think we need more more books about retrospectives. But I'll let Maybe you answer. Right. But but this book it started like this. I was at a conference and somebody asked me, "Oh, um, the person that was going to give a talk in the exhibition hall uh, just got sick." And so it's about 20 minutes until he needed to speak. And do you have anything you can talk about for 15 minutes that could be ready in 20 minutes without slides? Uh, and I thought, well, okay. One thing that I could definitely talk about is how many mistakes I make when I facilitate retrospectives. Because at that point I had been facilitating them for about six years and I kept making the same mistakes but I also heard about others who made those mistakes and I was very much in a, in a learning phase uh, when it came to facilitating so I gave this very short talk um, so I found the names for three three retrospectives anti-patterns the wheel of fortune the brand directive ignorance and um, in the soup were the three names of anti-patterns that I thought up in those 20 minutes and then I gave that talk and people loved it they thought it was fantastic I'm saying shamelessly, um, talking good about myself. And then I was invited to give a talk at a conference, and I thought, well, I could take this idea that people like, and I could talk about that. So I inflated it to a 45-minute talk, and people liked it. And they said, How, where can we read more about this? And I said, nowhere, really. It's all in my head. And I kept giving talks about it, and I used it in my courses when I, when I taught retrospective facilitation, and then I wrote a few blog posts in Danish about some of the anti-patterns. Um, but I, I had this, every time I talked to people about it, they were interested in reading more. And I 
So I started reading, writing it down just in a Word doc, and I thought it would be some blog posts, but and I couldn't really couldn't really get it finished. And it was sort of lying as a bad conscience in the back of my head. But every time I facilitated retrospective, I would take my little notebook with me. And when I got asked to facilitate a retrospective, I would write down the name of the company, the name of the people, the agenda that I thought of, everything that I heard about the team, and then a, a second or even a third agenda that would be sort of a backup agenda for if things would change. And then at the at the retrospective, I would take notes about what did they decide to do the next time so that I could ask them the next time. But also, what did I try? What changes did I make? How long time did this activity take? What did people say to this? How did they react to this? What worked? What didn't work with these people and with these people? So I had a, a book, and now I have three books full of notes for each of the retrospectives I made since then. Nice. And and that is basically what became the book because whenever I people talk to me about the book, I, I got a little spur of energy and I thought, oh, I'm going to write my book, I'm going to write my book because people would want this and then perhaps in a week I wrote a bit and then I forgot about it again because life is life. I've got three children and a husband and a parrot and a cat, so I've got enough to do, really. But then I was at the retrospective facilitators gathering last year with one of my very good friends, Therese, and she kept saying... Oh, you should talk about your anti-patterns. You should talk about your anti-patterns. And I said, well, I'm not really sure about it. Maybe they'll think it's it's too negative to talk about anti-patterns for retrospectives. Maybe they think it's too naive. I don't know. So the last day at the retrospective facilitators gathering, I set up a session about retrospectives anti-patterns. And it turned out that, as it is with patterns, that all these experienced retrospective facilitators, they, they had experienced all these anti-patterns before, so they agreed with me that those were anti-patterns that you see, so bad solutions. And they also agreed with me on the, um, at least mostly agreed with me, on the refactored solutions of how to get out of the anti-pattern once you're there. Because the anti-patterns nice. are... And, yep, sorry. And I'm thinking, uh, no, I'm thinking as someone in the audience that might not know what an anti-pattern is in a retrospective anti-pattern, can you uh, briefly describe it? Yes, I can. So first I want to say what a pattern is. So a pattern is um, a typical good solution to an often recurring problem. So imagine that you look at a, a lot of different systems and you see a pattern recurring. So you can sort of see the pattern with your eyes. Oh, these two boxes go together like this. Oh, they do that here as well. So that's a pattern of something that works well. An anti-pattern is where you're in a context and you believe that one solution is a good thing to do. And that could be a belief that stems from lack of experience, lack of time, lack of respect from the audience, all sorts of things. But you you apply that solution, and then it turns out that this is actually not beneficial, uh, and then you need to change your situation. So an anti-pattern is a description of a context in which a problem can occur or a situation occurs, and you try to solve it with a solution that is not the right solution, and then you refactor the solution to something better. So the anti-patterns in my book, some of them are describing things that you will experience them and you can change them at the moment where you experience them. So like real-time solutions, you can get out of this like this but sometimes the solution is well next time you facilitate a retrospective you should plan it in a different way you should make sure that you have these things handy or something like that so 
it's about awareness. So the way I want people to read this book is I want the novice retrospective facilitators to read it from one end to the other. And then they can use it sort of as a, as a book that they can go back to later and say, oh, I thought there was something about this. And then they find the loud mouth or the silent one or the wheel of fortune or something like that. And then they are reminded how they should get out of this situation. So I wanted to bring awesome. awareness to them. Nice. And can you share maybe like a couple uh, that that you think might be the, the ones that you've seen most that you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah. Of those, uh, of those anti-patterns. Yeah. So the, so the three first ones are actually the ones that I see the most. The one of them is the prime directive ignorance. And the prime directive comes from Norm Kurth's book, the one about project retrospectives. And it basically says that everybody always did the best when they could with the resources they had at hand and what they knew. So when you when you facilitate a retrospective, it is a good idea to bring that prime directive. Either put it on a poster, put it in the room, send it in an email, or just say it when you start the retrospective. But the but the problem for a lot of retrospective facilitators, especially novices and especially people working with developers sometimes, is that if they bring that prime directive, then the team might say to them, oh, we can't believe that. That sort of hippie love, love thing that everybody always do the best they can because we know not everybody do the best they can. So I can't believe that. I can't truly believe that. And then because the facilitator is a bit afraid of that reaction, then the anti-pattern solution is to ignore the prime directive. So the anti-pattern solution is prime directive ignorance. And then the refactored solution is if you if you can't actually try at least to have the mindset that everybody did the best they could before you enter a retrospective, then the retrospective will not be worth the time you're spending on it because people will not share because they're afraid of the blaming consequences and people will not even listen to what other people are saying because they're expecting them to say something so, you know, you hear what you want to hear, right? So the refactored solution is to acknowledge how important this is. And if they find the wording stupid or complicated, say it in your own way. Say it with different words. Just remind them every time you start. And perhaps you need to remind them during the retrospective. So sometimes having something on a poster can be a good idea. Great. And we might come back to the directive because I'm I'm a directive nerd as well, <laughs> and uh, I'd love to to. But um, maybe here, like one one more or a couple more of those yeah. um, anti patterns, and like you said, the um, the the refactor version. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I often see is called something I call the wheel of fortune, and. When I talk about the wheel of fortune, you should imagine that you're in a Tivoli and you're spinning a wheel and a number comes up and if it's the right number, then you win a little plush toy or some chocolate. But most of the time, if you just spin the wheel, you don't get anything out of it. It's just, you just lost your money, right? So that's the thought I want people to have in their mind when I say wheel of fortune. Because what I see, especially with new newly created scrum masters that are to facilitate retrospectives because they have to take it in in the book of the agile methods is that they say well we'll we won't spend too much time on the retrospective 
maybe just 30 minutes, and then we'll just have three posters up, one about things they want to start doing, one about things they want to stop doing, one about things they want to continue doing, and then people put post-it notes there, and then we, we vote uh, which of these we want to start, stop, and continue doing. So it's, in, it's a quick and easy way to facilitate a retrospective. Unfortunately, it works a bit like a Wheel of Fortune, because it could be that perhaps the thing you want to do is have more pair programming, and uh, that's what you decide you want to have, and you take that out as an experiment. But if you don't understand why you don't have as much pair programming as you want to have, if you don't look at the cause behind the problems, then perhaps you just try to solve something which is a symptom of a problem and not the actual problem. And that's where the Wheel of Fortune comes in, because you might be, I mean, it might be so that the post-it note that you choose is actually the cause of the problem, and you will you will change that. But what if people are just very um, introvert and they or they don't trust each other, so they don't trust other people to look at their code? Then forcing them to do that is not a good idea. So it would be a better idea to look at why don't we have more pair programming? What is it that is holding us back? Is it just because we think it doesn't work and we should try try it out as an experiment, or are there bigger things at stake. So that's another one. And then the and the refactored solution to this is to remember the five um, stages of a retrospective. That first you, you set the stage of the retrospective, then you gather data, then you generate insights. And that's the thing that people often forget to do. It, it's not just about gathering data and deciding what to do and closing the retrospective, but you also have to have that generating insight stage. Because if you don't generate insights, you might just work with the symptoms and not the real problems. And do you want me to talk about the third one? Um, no, I, th- I don't know. I think if you if you want, yes. I think if you have something in mind, uh, and then we can come back to the five steps and some of this, which is also very interesting. So the third one I would like to talk about is something I call in the soup. Well, it's the working title for now anyway. I'm not sure whether that will be the real title, but that's the working title for the anti-pattern. And that is if you if you facilitate retrospectives for a team, where there's some issues that keep popping up, that um, you try to come up with solutions for it, but they pop up in one way or the other every time. Or if you have a, if you have a team where... You, the only things that come up are, are things that they cannot really do anything about that the management should do something about. So it really turns out to be just venting sessions instead of constructive sessions. Then I call it that you're in the soup. And I use that word in the soup from the circles and soup uh, activity that I learned from Diana Larson and Esther Darby, where you, for instance, it you can use that in the gathering data and the generating inside or the deciding what to do. But the, the point is that if you have collected a lot of issues on post-it notes or wherever, and then you can draw three circles, the smallest one is the things that the team can do something about. So that could be, um, we want uh, better stand-up meetings or uh, we want to go out for drinks or something like that. And then you can have the things that they can influence and, and that could be things that they cannot change themselves, but it could be things that they perhaps could ask somebody about, send an email, or perhaps 
describing a problem that they have to management. And then the things outside are in the soup. And the things in the soup are the things that the team cannot do anything about. So if they spend their time discussing things that are in the soup at each retrospective, then it, it becomes a waste of time. Well, it still has got the element of the venting, like getting out some steam, but it doesn't really change the problems because these are problems that they cannot change themselves. And the um, the refactored solution is to is to draw these three circles and make them, first of all, aware that these things are in the soup. And if we want to discuss them, and we should be aware that we cannot solve them. The only thing we could do, perhaps, is to learn how to avoid them or learn how to live with them or something like that. These are things that you can't even influence, really. And I I also use it sometimes with teams where they, they find it easier to have retrospectives that are just complaint sessions where they don't really look at the things that they can do something about themselves. And then that soup circles and soup exercise is really valuable as well. Nice, great. And one thing that comes to mind with the circles and soup is that there is that, that I say when we do this exercise. By the way, I learned that it's also known as the circle of influences. So some oh. people know it from yeah. that name. Um, and uh, it's that there's always, like the team can always decide how to react mm-hmm. to those events. Yeah. So even when we feel that we're completely... Um, out of control, we can't influence. As a team, we can come up with a plan on what we can, how can we react to this yeah. thing happening. So there is a, a brims of light that that can uh, that can be beneficial for for teams that are uh, stuck in that yeah. in that space. If there is nothing else at all that they can do. So in Denmark, we have the wise saying that, um, "Please give me coffee to solve the problems that need work. Please give me wine to accept." things I can't change and give me wisdom to know the difference. And I think we have sayings like that in every language, right? And that is basically what it is about, exactly as you say. There's some things we just need to learn how to endure, and but that can be valuable as well. But it's not valuable if we keep up coming with experiments that we want to do or changes that we are not capable of doing, because then it's just a waste of time and it's just a retrospective as Daniel North said. Yeah, I like that name. Yeah. Um, awesome. Um, and uh, so one thing that uh, that comes to mind is uh, yesterday you were you were giving uh, you giving a talk uh, about the anti patterns online, and uh, uh, we we might put a link. I don't know if there's a recording. We'll put a link in the in the show notes. And uh, there are many questions that, that came from the audience and uh, very well attended, over 80 people. Um, I think one thing that, that I realized, that came to realize is a lot of those questions are very, they don't have like a, one answer. It's mm-hmm. very all very contextual. It depends on, on team size, on the where the team is in their journey, uh, on a lot of things. But some of the things that are around trust and safety, uh, what made me uh, realize is that they are really, it doesn't depend. There has to be trust and there has to be psychological safety for a retrospective to be um, to be yielding positive, positive results. And um, yeah, I just wanted to bounce that off you and see what your thoughts are in that, in that space of trust. 
Yeah, I agree totally that a lot of things depend on the context when it comes to facilitating retrospectives. But the trust thing is, is generic. It, um, it it's important in every aspect because if there is no trust, then you can't really live up to the prime directive just as a starter. If you don't trust that people did the best, if you don't trust them to say what went wrong, then it becomes useless, the retrospective. You will only be talking about how the food is in the canteen and whether you need to move the coffee uh, box or whether you want the stand-up to be 5 minutes or 15 minutes. These things that, well, you can spend an hour talking about that, but it doesn't really change the situation. But the trust is important, and the trust is can be hard to gain, but it can be very easy to lose. If you take a moment and you think about the people that you trust in your life. I think what you will come up with is the people that you trust are the people you have a relationship with, but also the people that you feel that you can rely on. So if if you have a team with people and you feel that you can rely on the other team members, for instance, if they promise to do something for you, then you can rely on them either doing it or saying if they cannot do it, instead of just not doing it and not saying anything. Or you can rely on them to give you a, a constructive review. And then when the review comes back, it's not constructive either. It's too critical or there's no criticism at all. And then the other part is the relationship part that you need to have a relationship to people on some on some human level in order to trust them. And for ha- to have that relationship, you have to think about working together with the whole person instead of just a white person. So a lot of the fun and games and activities that we use in setting the stage in retrospectives where we talk about how we felt since the last retrospective or we we try to draw a picture of um, what the team's cooperation is like or we talk about hobbies or we ask a question of what was the last meal you ate or um, what did you see in the cinema the last time or something like that. All these little things that seems to some people to be waste of time because they've got nothing to do with work are actually extremely valuable when it comes to building trust. And and the trust is so important, not just in a retrospective, but also on day-to-day work because if you don't trust the people you work with, who do you go to if you have a problem? If you don't trust them to react in a nice way, if you say, I don't know how to do this or please help me, or I'm stuck, or I think I made a mistake, then you might cover up your mistakes, you might cover up that you're sick, you might cover up that you're, what do I know, in the middle of a divorce or something like that. And with the coronavirus, at least in Denmark, people have been forced to work from home with their children home from school. So imagine some couples where both the mother and the father are supposed to work full-time from home, and they have perhaps three kids under the age of 10 that they have to not only take care of and feed and make happy, but also homeschool together with the full-time job. So that that stress thing that you are able to say to your colleagues, I just can't do anything today. I'm just knackered. That should be something that you should feel the trust to say or the psychological safety to say. And when it comes to nice. psychological safety, I just heard a talk by Gide Klitko, the, um, another amazing facilitator I know and she talks about psychological safety and she reminded me of something which I think is very important is 
some people think that psychological safety is staying in your comfort zone, but it's actually not. It's the opposite. It's going out of your comfort zone, feeling uncomfortable, but yet feeling safe. And I think that's also what trust is about. Great. And one thing, one reflection that came to mind is um, it's a like trust and psychological safety should be a, a it's a systemic change. Mm-hmm. It can't be bottom up or top down. It has to come from both sides. Mm. Um, how do you do you have any suggestions for people in the audience that feel that they can or maybe they have trust and psychological safety within their teams, but outside of the team or let's say that they are in, like many people are in a hierarchical organization, a certain level of the organization doesn't really um, say they believe in that, but they don't really practice that. Um, And personally, like when I think of that, honestly, as as a consultant, what comes to mind is, it has to be happening in 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 both at both ends because mm. I've been in, uh, in 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 places in in engagements where I was from the from the down up and it's really uh, it's going to take a long long time if we just make it a grassroots movement and so me as an ex- and again the reflection I have is when I'm an external facilitator versus when I'm a product manager within a company with a team working for a company that doesn't really practice psychological safety, that is a tough spot to be. And um, do you have any suggestions for that situation? And for the consultant that can just go to the top and say, hey, we need this, possibly. Well, for the consult, for the consultant, because I've, I've been that consultant as well, it's extremely important to make people higher up in the hierarchy aware of psychological safety and they might not listen to you but there's a lot of research out there there's a big white paper i think from google about psychological safety and and basically you have to tell them how much more money they can earn if they make sure to to do that um and but it's but it doesn't come naturally to them if if they if they created an organization where they don't have psychological safety, it's because they don't trust the people. And that distrust can be historical. Um, it could be based on things that actually happened, but it could also just be based on fear or what they hear on the golf course about you have to keep them in a tight leash and things like that. So you have to try to first explain to them that they can actually make more money if they if they apply psychological safety to the whole organization so that people feel safe they might stay there and work better and then you should let them know how they can work with it so it could be something like how is their reaction to things that are delayed how is their reaction to things that go wrong how is their reaction to themselves if they do something which is wrong if they say something that is wrong do they stand up on a little box and say i made a mistake and that's just how it is we all make mistakes let them start with themselves because if they don't if they can't show that vulnerability then i'm sure nobody else around them dare to show any vulnerability they might stand up on a box and say we need psychological safety come to me with all your problems say if something is wrong or if you can't work but if they don't show that themselves, it's not very believable. And well, for a team, I, I think the most important thing is to try to measure where is the psychological safety. And there, I know there are a lot of 
ways where you can measure anonymously the psychological safety in the team. A very simple safety check um, activity is just to give everybody a piece of paper and say, um, put a one on this paper if if you feel so insecure that you can't say anything to this team and you actually want to work somewhere else and put five if you want to share everything about your life with this team and all about your problems with the work and then see what they um, what they come up with because then you have some data that you might be able to show to the people higher up in the hierarchy. Did that answer nice. your question, Enrico? Yeah, I think I think it did. It's like um, like assessing it as a team level. Um, I think I was asking a very tough question in terms of uh, if the company itself is uh, doesn't really foster psychological safety, and you're kind of like stuck in a in a product manager or product owner or tech lead job within the team. It's um, that is something that I, I really don't have an answer, honestly. Is like I, I'm not. I try not to give career advice, but if and sometimes I've been in that position, you create a bubble in your team mm. where there is psychological safety, there is trust, mm. but all around you there are agents that can just burst the bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that that is I don't I don't know if. Uh, if there is even an answer, but it's just like considerations, but um, of of what's happening outside outside the bubble, and and then again, I think it's the, the other re- sometimes reflection that that I make is like, well, how we react to those things bursting our bubble that can influence the system that could change something. So mm-hmm. there is always a um, the, the 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 glimpse of like things can change, but it's a, it's such a long. Um, it's such a long journey that as people embedded in, in, in companies that don't foster that, True. Uh, I find it, uh, I, I don't find a lot of, uh, a lot of practical suggestion, like, uh, yeah. when there's lack of that. Yeah. So, well, I'm working a bit with Catherine Kirk at the moment and she gave me a mantra some week ago saying your actions determine the outcome. And that's a bit harsh, but it's good to think about that instead of complaining about people being stupid or being lazy or the management not trusting you, your actions determine the outcome. Yeah. Right. And 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 when we were talking about the top bottom just now, like we as a team need to remember the prime director. Yeah. That uh, regardless of what we discovered today, we truly believe that the top, that this person did the best job they could given what they knew at the time, yeah. given the skills and ability, the situation available. So we we need to, I think, yeah, coming up with the way we react as a team to maybe mm-hmm. say a, a policy instead of like just like being pissed off or being annoyed and do nothing, maybe come up with a story or something or yeah. or a draw, yeah. drawing something as a team and yeah. presenting it to this. You you never know because those, yeah, there is like, uh, I think the prime directive is really core. I think we're, we're kind of running out of time, but yeah. uh, the prime directive is core to, uh, to, to a retrospective and it's really tough. I was talking with someone a few weeks ago and he was telling me, well, I tried to read it to the group but then there was like eyes rolling up and people saying, <laughs> yes. Yes. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. The best yeah. job, right. Yeah. You're cute when you say that. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, but, uh, I, it, but I think the prime directive is a good way to end. And also I think that 
not just thinking about it in the team, but as you say, also with the management, they already did, they also did the best they could. But I think also important for yourself as a facilitator, you have to say to yourself, you did the best you could with what you knew at the time and the resources you had at hand. So you might have done something which was not constructive or not valuable or negative, but you did the best you could. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it, And it's really like, uh, it's, in my opinion, a good way to kind of like see where, where things are are going and mm-hmm. kind of like do a quick a quick check and seeing those, yeah, yeah, right, or seeing eyes rolling mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. is a good way to kind of like send you signals about yes. those things. So you don't need to go and do and do post-its. Just doing that is a, is a, a way to do it. And the given, I really like stress the given what the best job they could by itself. Mm-hmm. It's really, really hard to to, to kind of like best job you could, right? Yeah. But given what they knew at it and yeah. all the givens yeah. uh, that all Norm put in there, yeah. they are uh, they are really opening up their retrospective yeah. to that context. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but it's 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 not easy because. I think we are not, I don't want to say hardwired, but I think from school and from the whole like uh, evaluating system, uh, there's like, you made a mistake, whose fault is it? Yeah. And so it's it's kind of hard to, to go back to, but if uh, the directive is, is a good bridge in a way, maybe. It is, but even even in your childhood, I mean, who hasn't been asked by the parents who did that, who started it? Absolutely. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to try and like move us. Uh, I'd love to keep talking for, for hours. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I try to keep those episodes within uh, a certain amount of minutes. Um, and so I guess, is there anything that, uh, um, that we missed that you wanted to, to share with the audience about uh, uh, retrospective anti patterns before we had to wrapping up? It can sometimes be a very hard job to be a retrospective facilitator and people don't always appreciate the hard work that you do. You're sometimes in a position where you're forced to facilitate retrospectives to a bunch of people who don't really want it. Be kind to yourself. Awesome. That's a, that's a great way uh, to... Uh to end there and then i'm gonna ask you the same three questions that i asked to all the guests the first one is uh uh, what is a book you're reading right now or a book that you finished uh reading doesn't Uh, have to be about no it's uh, not facilitation yeah so i got the book difficult women in birthday present from my husband it's about all the some of the feminists that in in our history and how some of them were not saints. They had their flaws and faults, and they still created some great changes for, for all women throughout the history. So, but they were called difficult women because they just wouldn't shut up about things like voting and abortions and things like that. It, but it makes me in a very bad mood when I read it, so it, I shouldn't read it right before. I should have a cozy session with my husband because it just makes me in a really bad mood. Great. Um, the next one is, uh, what is uh, one activity? Uh, so we talked about the, the five steps uh, mm-hmm. structure. What is one retrospective activity that has worked well for you? Uh, and in which context uh, was it? 
Well, when I have a when I start up with a team where they they feel like they are very different, a heterogeneous team could be that people are put together as developers and operations to in a DevOps team or there's some testers there or something like that. They feel they're not together. I really like this um tribe um tribe activity that I use in the beginning where people are in a circle and somebody says my tribe likes skiing and they take a step forward and everybody who likes skiing takes a step forward and then perhaps somebody else says my tribe likes C sharp and then everybody who likes C sharp stands uh, forward and then you can see who does and who doesn't and you can have a conversation about that but it could also be more personal it could be like my tribe has children or my tribe has lived in one more than one country or something like that so you sort of it depends on the people in the room how how private it becomes, but what it does is that it it shows us that we might look different, but we have some things that we share. Cool. I didn't know about this one. This is uh, interesting, and I think we can put it online, right? We can. Yeah, but I don't raise know our who... virtual hand. Yes, exactly. And I don't know who put came up with it. I just heard it somewhere, probably in retrospective facilitators gathering at some point. Cool, cool. Awesome. And the final question I know is what is your favorite food? Oh my god. If you favorite. had to pick one item. Oh, that's difficult because I really, really love food. I would say a green salad with a balsamic vinegar, olive oil and garlic dressing i love that and i actually i nice. eat it mostly for the dressing i i drink the rest of the dressing afterwards so it's not so much the green salad i'm into it's the dressing but it's just i need the salad in order to it's a catalyzation thing yeah fantastic and where is the olive oil coming from of course italy okay that's the right answer yes <laughs> <laughs> but it is actually <laughs> Fantastic. Cool. I know. Thank you um, so much. Oh, actually, um, how can um, uh, how, how can our listeners find you? Well, first, yeah, they can go on Twitter. I'm A-P-A-I-P-I on Twitter. I have a website, metadeveloper.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. And my name is extremely easy to Google. I don't think there's anybody else online called Aino Corey. And if you put in my middle name, then it's even easier. Nice. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you around. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> in retrospect. Yes. <laughs> Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Are you going to tweak anything in your next retrospective based on what you've heard today? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag this is retrospective facilitation or leave us a comment on this is retrospective facilitation.com. I've opened up a Slack channel, so if you're locked in and want to bounce ideas off other facilitators about retrospective designs or just want to share some stories, you can head to this is retrospective facilitation.com slash Slack. Everyone is welcome. If you'd like to look at this episode's show notes and the links to contact Aino, head to thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash e slash 23. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. 
Till next time.